and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. I'm Christine Burns. Well, it's nearly party conference season again, and it's the first time with Conservatives in government since the mid-1990s. It may surprise some listeners to know that back in those days, I was a Conservative Party activist. I was the secretary of an active branch of the party in Cheshire and a regular attendee at party conferences. I wasn't out in those days. As a transsexual woman, I'd completed my social transition between genders many years before and had settled into a quiet and discreet life among the well-to-do women who formed the backbone of a certain class of society in one of the Tory heartlands. I didn't advertise my transsexual history and... Well, if anyone had harboured any suspicions, it had never ever been mentioned. In 1995, all of that was about to change, though. I'd been a member of the campaign organisation Press for Change since shortly after it was formed in 1992. And now, because the campaign required visible representatives to put themselves forward on the public stage, I'd taken the difficult personal decision to come out. I'd volunteered to organise and speak at two key events at the Labour and Conservative conferences in the first two weeks of October 1995. This was momentous, life-changing stuff, at least for me, and so I wrote about it at the time. Fifteen years on, it's therefore a good time to revisit those two weeks covered by the Diary of a Conference Campaigner. Monday, October 2nd, 1995. The Labour Party conference has begun and at 9am I'm at home in Cheshire frantically telephoning my cleaner so that she'll not arrive in the middle of a live phone-in session for a BBC local station. I'm on the radio with Labour's Dr Lynn Jones MP, the leader of the campaign's cross-parliamentary forum. It's just three days since her press release citing me as a transsexual Conservative Party activist and by now I'm getting into the swing of talking to journalists and faxing them my fact pack. Facts, and a firm refusal to answer silly personal questions, seem to have little news value, though. The best I've achieved has been a lurid front-page headline on a London evening free sheet. (laughs) Major's Tory transsexual turmoil. I'm wondering whether to even bother to go out and buy the Daily Star this morning, after Sunday's long chat with their Claire Lumley. At least with a live radio programme, you know you're getting somewhere even if it is only a playing to an audience of 10,000. I decorate my office with pillows to kill the echoes and to turn it into a makeshift sound booth. Then I hover over the phone for the scheduled call. It all started on Thursday night with a veritable flurry of calls, right in the middle of dinner. First there was a Midlands press agency. When did you have your operation, they said. Then the political editor of the Birmingham Evening Post. When did you have your operation? Then a rather disinterested man from the Press Association. When did you have your operation? Then agency number one sent round a photographer, barely 17, covered in acne and moaning that he'd been on his way home in order to come and find me. I offered him tea and sympathy. He declined, and we moved around the house with his camera. A photo with me at my computer, a photo in the lobby, a couple more in the settee in the lounge. He said the Daily Mail were interested in the agency's package and I made a note to buy it just for once on Friday. 
As the boy left, he turned and asked his only real question of the entire visit. When did you have your operation? I slip out to buy the star, not sure whether I feel self-conscious at buying a paper that's plastered with the evidence of men's sexual agenda from front to back, or whether it's because a neighbour's just popped by to warn that they're talking about me over the bar in the local pub. This is when the sacrifice starts to feel real. When you've consciously given up a completely normal role in the local community to endure, instead, the status of freak. I remind myself that this is why I'm making the sacrifice. And I wonder whether I'll end up moving house eventually, when it's all over. The local Conservative branch, where I'm both Secretary and Vice-Chair, is having an emergency meeting tonight to discuss me. My chairman has called the meeting after she came back from holiday to a call from the mail. What did people think of this revelation about me? <laughs> Strange they never rang me. She told them, truthfully, that she doesn't know. She's grateful for the fact that I briefed her and all the local Conservative councillors a couple of weeks previously. I ponder what it feels like to be a subject of discussion and decide I'll go and see my mum and dad in the evening by way of a welcome distraction. I'm starting to feel alone. Back home, the Daily Star goes in the bin. <laughs> Nothing. But there's a phone call from a man in the Times Diary. He's reading a press release that's come from an agency that read what another agency had sent them, a sort of professional game of Chinese whispers. What's this about Tory cross-dressers holding a fringe meeting? I fax him an original of the Lynn Jones press release along with the campaign summary and wait whilst he digests them. After two hours, he's not rung back, and I ring him instead. Oh, sorry, I got dragged out to lunch. You know how it is. I commiserate whilst trying not to sound too cynical. We talk. <laughs> no, no, he talks. I just listen and occasionally try to butt in. He says he'll try and squeeze something in. Just one last question. When did you have your operation? When the phone is back on the hook, I scream. Tuesday, October the 3rd, 1995. I'm up, dressed, packed and in the car by 8.30am. It's a long drive from Cheshire to Brighton and I want the time to wind down before the fringe meeting on Wednesday. A brief detour to the hairdressers, <laughs> appearances suddenly seem vital more than ever before, and then I'm on the motorway headed south. On the long drive, I think back over the last few days and particularly about the branch meeting the night before. The chairman had rung just after I got home from visiting my parents and announced the jury's verdict. It had taken them nearly two hours to arrive at their considered answer to the press. If approached, the agreed line was apparently to be no comment. Now, the morning after, I wonder whether it had been altogether wise to get emotional on the phone to have said that I'd expected something better in return for three and a half years of commitment to them, and to question what sort of people were afraid to voice simple support for a colleague, for fear of what the press might make of it. And this is the generation that loses no time telling the young how they fought for our freedom. The Nazis experimented on and then gassed my kind. The civilised response doesn't feel a lot better at this moment. The chairman protested that if I'd been a fly on the wall, then I'd have heard all the nice things that people had to say about me. 
failing to mention one, it seems, who thinks that sort of thing is okay, so long as they don't flaunt it under our noses. This was supposed to be a comfort. But then I suppose they'll be equally comforted to know that I've said nice things about them in private too. I dare say they're caught between a rock and a hard place. There's a lot to be learned if they'll only stop long enough to listen. But we're in this place by being too soft for too long on those who prefer ignorance to responsibility. I've offered enlightenment. The rest is up to them. Meanwhile on the car journey, I decided to make a detour on the way to visit the mother of a 17-year-old transsexual teenager. She's on the phone to a woman's magazine journalist as I arrive, explaining about the group she's formed to support parents in her position. And we talk about Jill's progress and Wednesday's fringe meeting over tea and cake. Jill's lucky in many ways. The world's a kinder place than it was. Although Jill was still too petrified to tell her mum how she felt inside until Moira worked it out by elimination and inspired guesswork three years ago. When I was 14, there would have been no understanding here for my distress and certainly no treatment. I kept quiet and tried to conform. Yet the prospects for Jill's future had already disappeared by my own 16th birthday, when transsexual people became legal non-entities because of a badly judged divorce case in 1970. Jill still faces being unable to marry, and a birth certificate that will brand her wherever she goes. She'll have no protection against dismissal, and no proper redress in law if she were raped. She may have to fight to stop her treatment being axed by a health authority that looks on such things as non-essential. And, if she commits a crime, this pretty and timid young woman stands to be put into solitary confinement among the sex offenders in a men's prison and denied the drugs that prevent her unoperated body from going through a male puberty. I visualise the scene and shudder. I know too that Jill could quite easily become one of the desperate 34% who consider suicide if their treatment is disrupted. Back on the road, I'm glad I made the visit. I reminded myself why what I'm doing is important and about the people whose futures depend on sacrifices made now and over the next few years by others like me. People keep telling me I'm brave, so why do I keep wanting to stop and cry? Arriving at a friend's house in Hove, the hospitality for the night has already been planned. We head for an Italian place that the conference-goers haven't yet spotted, and then it's on to a local folk club, where they say they'll try and make a spot for me to perform some of my poems. I've never performed poetry to a proper audience before, and the thought takes my mind off the day ahead. I've not delivered a speech at a fringe meeting before either, let alone to journalists and Labour conference delegates. Am I about to fall flat on my face twice in 24 hours? The folk club's programme is full, and in the end they don't have time for me to perform. Christine Burns' poet goes unheard. And I wonder whether that's prophetic on the basis of my experiences with the press over the last few days. I sit and sip my mineral water as the minstrels gather on stage for a joint, unrehearsed finale. It's a lesson too late for the learning they sing. I hope not. I could have loved you better, didn't mean to be unkind... You know that was the last thing on my mind. Or that it was so. Wednesday, October the 4th, 1995. I've been working towards this day for the better part of six months, 
And as I get dressed and roll up the sleeping bag, I'm glad I'm staying with friends rather than in a hotel. A bed would have been much more comfortable than the battered settee in Alice's library. And the light at the dining table is hardly ideal for a neurotic campaigner desperate to get her makeup just right today. However, Alice is not just a real-life psychologist, but a five-star earth mother to boot. We breakfast deliciously with beans on toast and talk about the conferences we've worked on together. She calls me a taxi, flatters me to death, and then, the most important thing of all, she holds me tight for a few minutes. It's what I need, and I wonder why nobody else has cottoned on to the fact. I'm scared. Smart and cool might be the image, but tiny and frightened is what's going on inside. Everybody needs one Alice in their life. I'm surprised during the taxi ride that Brighton seems to have so few visible signs that a major conference is in progress. In Blackpool and Bournemouth, there always seem to be Conservatives everywhere. Conservatives walking to the conference venue, Conservatives milling around the shops. Maybe they just stick out more than Labour activists. The taxi driver isn't impressed anyway. Labour supporters aren't, he reckons, great taxi users. Arriving at the hotel, he jumps out to open the door and apologises a lot that he can't get any closer to the entrance. The weather's foul, and I give him an absurdly generous tip to make some sort of oblique political point. The lobby has a little pack of familiar faces when I get inside. Half a dozen transsexual people and somebody's partner. I notice, as I always do on such occasions, that we never get unaffected people campaigning with us, but I decide not to speculate on this occasion. A positive state of mind is essential. Upstairs, the room my Labour colleague has booked is perfect, and I wonder whether we'll fill all the seats. I'm assuming, of course, that all these able volunteers have turned up from a morning of frantic leafleting, and I'm a bit worried when it dawns that they haven't. My colleague, it seems, feels that an entry in the fringe guide is enough, though, so I go off in search of a drink of water. Five minutes before the appointed hour, and one solitary photographer has arrived and is looking out to sea. The expert speakers arrive from the bar, and we form a little huddle to decide which order we're speaking in. I'm on last. A few more faces have appeared in dribs and drabs, and by a quarter past, we do at least have six assorted journalists and a two-man crew from Central TV joining the photographer. Ken Livingstone appears briefly and then disappears again, and I wonder if it's some sort of record to hold a fringe meeting at a Labour conference with no actual delegates present. As Lynn Jones starts her introduction, I assure myself that my notes are within reach at the top of my bag. And then, as I look up again, I realise that the photographer's lens is pointing unwaveringly at me. I decide he's waiting to get an unflattering picture and desperately try to ignore the sudden itch at the tip of my nose. This is not a time to scratch. Lynn's opening speech is clear, concise and very good, which is more than I can say for the two experts that follow, who mumble quite uncharacteristically and assume their audience will understand the jargon. From wondering what I'd have left to say, I realise that I've got it all to say. Thank God I typed up a crib sheet last week and jotted some ideas before breakfast. I decide that maybe the photographer, whose lens still hasn't wavered, would like some different facial expressions to choose from, so I run through as many as one can reasonably express when sitting next to the speaker. The shutter still doesn't move, so instead I stare straight into the lens and arrange my jaw in the way that I've practised to produce a pleasant but intelligently reposed look. 
the journalist sitting beside the photographer signals that he can leave if he wants. He takes a picture and he's gone. I go back to concentrating on what's coming next. In the end, rising to my feet, I'm relieved. I open my mouth and I'm pleasantly surprised to find I've still got a voice. The rest comes naturally. I deliver what feels like the best speech of my life, certainly the most passionately articulate. I slip in a couple of humorous bits and the audience relaxes, visibly. I keep apologising for the length of the list I'm stepping through to make a point. I make eye contact with each journalist in turn as I find something that maybe they can identify with. And at the end, the closing words are pure inspiration and just right. I sit down to a warm round of applause and, well, I'm pleased. The questions are sensible ones for the most part. Do I intend to leave the Conservative Party? No. Which MP is chairing the event in Blackpool next week? Unfortunately, I couldn't find one. Some points are made about the constructive role that the press could take to undo the negative public opinion they've generated by the style of coverage in the past. And then the meeting's over, and I head for the tea and biscuits at the far end of the room. Two women from Today and the Express come over to ask some more questions and chat. It's non-invasive stuff. Either they're very good, or maybe they understand. Tongue-in-cheek, they ask me when I had my operation, and we laugh when I comment that I've been asked once or twice before. They say they both hope to do good pieces, and I want to believe them. The communication and the understanding seems woman to woman, and I wonder how much that difference in approach brings them into conflict with their male colleagues. Can goodwill translate into good copy? Lynn is engrossed with a piece director camera for the TV crew, and I wonder if they'll want me too, but they don't. I talk to another couple of women from a Japanese news agency. Same questions, same replies. And then mercifully they're all gone, and I can flop into a chair with another cup of tea. Unusually for me, I stir in a generous spoonful of sugar. It's over. Maybe tonight I'll be big in Tokyo. Will London notice, though? Originally, I thought I'd stay for a second night in Hove, but now I just want to get back home. Alice wants me to get the experts back for a talk about their joint research over tea and biscuits. I know that Richard, the American, won't be able to resist the prospect, even though the other is protesting that he must get a train at four. Psychiatrists are complicated folk, and I enjoy on this occasion taking charge and organising them into a taxi, ringing ahead with my mobile phone for Alice to get the kettle on and check the timetable just to seal the decision. Back at Alice's, we admire her collection of collections. Her house is like a magic grotto, and Richard is captivated. I sit on the edge of the discussion and say intelligent things, but now my mind is starting to work on to the week ahead. What will the Conservative conference be like? This is just a one-day affair. Next week I'll be involved before, during and after. On the drive home, I speculate too about whether anything's happened while I've been away. Worse, will the leaflets I've ordered be ready in time and will the people I've organised to distribute them pull out at the eleventh hour? I put on my favourite compilation tape and reflect that, well, whatever else, the only way now is forwards. Thursday, October the 5th, 1995. A quietish day, marked only by a call from a sympathetic-sounding woman on the London Evening Standard. 
We talk for 20 minutes and I fax her the fact pack before ringing a friend there to ask if she'll keep an eye on what they print. Old suspicions die hard, I'm afraid. There's nothing, of course, in either Today or The Express and I start wondering whether they're busy instead trying to dig up background on me. I start pulling the curtains in the evenings and looking more carefully in the car's rear mirrors when I'm out. Friday, October the 6th. The day starts with two very different letters in the post. The first is on the familiar parliamentary stationery and contains quite a testy letter from Gillian Shepherd in person. I've complained that the Department of Education and Employment has evaded giving a straight or constructive answer to all our criticisms of the holes in the Sex Discrimination Act, in spite of clear evidence that the committee drafting the Act had intended it to cover transsexual people and that her last reply was so vague that it could only be tested in court. Why must citizens risk their entire livelihoods for the convenient practice of getting legislation defined by case law? She didn't like that, and went back to stating flatly that the government had no plans to review the situation. (laughs) That's better. I hate all the phony expressions of concern. The second letter is a complete surprise. A trans woman in North Kent had read about me in some paper or other. Could this be a first? And she felt moved to write a thank you, care of the Conservative Party, since she didn't have my address. What a nice thought. Although as I opened the envelope, it had struck me that the contents could be in green ink and express very different sentiments. How would I react to that if it happens? I resolved to drop my well-wisher a thank you note before setting off to collect the leaflets I'd asked for. This is going to be a weekend dominated by little organisational details. Coming up in the next episode, the Conservative Conference. Meeting ignorance and bad manners face to face, but also discovering great kindness. You're listening to Just Plain Sense, a podcast on themes of equality and diversity. And this has been part one of The Diary of a Conference Campaigner, written in October 1995. If you'd like to hear more programmes, then the place to go is the website podcast.plain-sense.co.uk Join us again soon for part two in this reading and for other programmes about diversity. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense limited production. (laughs) 